This comes back to a famous quote from Viktor Frankl, who once said that suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment you find meaning. When you look at the corporate work I do and how you generate perseverance in that type of context, if you don't have meaning and if you don't create meaning for your people, then there will be very little hope of having any sense of perseverance. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Matt Johnson. He's a communications and change management expert by way of math and philosophy and political science. He's worked at the Pentagon. He works in corporate America now. And all of that is fine. You know, he's got a POV on human resources. What's most important is that he's the author of a really cool book called Work Songs. For as long as we've had language, we've had songs for the work we do. Think about it, whether it's the sea shanties that are popular on TikTok, or field songs sung under blistering sun, or even industrial workers who sang to the rhythms of machines, our ancestors fought boredom, found meaning, and built connections at work and survived through songs and storytelling. In his new book, Matt makes this really audacious argument that modern work has no song. And so we talk about that in today's episode, perseverance, meaning, storytelling, song. But the coolest thing about Matt is that he's a former punk rock musician turned corporate sellout. And I think to myself, if a man like this can find meaning in the work that he does today and really get energized by corporate communications and change management, well, there's hope for all of us. So if you're interested in, you know, two people nerding out about storytelling and the world of work, well, sit back and enjoy this episode of Punk Rock HR. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Lori. Great to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have you here. You've got a really great background and a wonderful story. So kick us off by telling us who you are and what you do for a living and what you're all about. I do come from a line of storytellers in Iowa, so you have to be careful with this, but I'll keep it short. But I was born and raised in Iowa, originally studied mathematics and philosophy. So I was a bit of an eccentric character from the start. I went to the University of Iowa, and then I came out and I pursued a a degree in mathematics in a field called differential topology. But as I got into it, I really started down the path of a PhD, finished my master's. And as a side job, I started writing and editing math textbooks. And the lifestyle of the type of mathematics that I did, which was really pure math. So I spent a lot of time at a chalkboard actually writing out proofs. And I remember looking in the mirror at the end of one of these stretches, and I just had chalk in my hair. I hadn't slept. I had bags under my eyes. And I thought, you know what? This may not be the path for me because I was surrounded by a, a bunch of brilliant people who took 20 20 minutes to do the problem that I took three days to do. So I decided to quit school, go on tour in a punk rock band that I had been playing in. And I spent a couple of years doing that. When I was in that band, and of course, like all great stories, I have to have an inflection point. It was in April of 2006, and I was in the back of the van, and we were going to be way too early for a show. And so the drummer who was driving decided to pull over at a thrift store. And I went to the book section, and I picked up a book called Brighter Than a Thousand Suns. And it was written in the 50s about the Manhattan Project. 
subject. And I can't really tell you why I bought that book for 50 cents that day, but I can definitely tell you it changed my life. Because I sat in the back of the van and I read about how these 125,000 people came together and they didn't even fully understand all of them, what they were doing, but they knew they were there to potentially save the world. And watching the power of the purpose that really drove them, it became a story that was actually much bigger than the bomb they were creating. And it started in me a real passion to learn about that. So I read more books about national security, global economics, and things like that. Ended up going back to school for national security. And I came out to work in the Obama administration in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I worked there doing what we call contingency operations. And so it was a partnership with Department of State to do post-conflict stabilization activities. And so it'd be countries like Chad, Nigeria, Cameroon. When things really went bad, we would try and work with partners to stabilize it. I did that for five years, met and fell in love with a lady from Richmond, Virginia, came down here and shifted gears a little bit into change management consulting. And then now I work at the Markel Corporation doing communications and change. And a lot of people kind of ask me how that sort of last transition really came about. And I can tell you a little bit more, but basically the Pentagon taught me how to write. And I started a blog using those skills and that blog became a book. And that's kind of what I used to change careers the last time. God damn it. That story is so punk rock. <laughs> There's like a DIY ethos in there. There's a get your hands dirty, working class ethos. I'm absolutely enamored with your origin story and your ongoing story. And one of the things that I find really beautiful about your message is that you believe that modern work has no song. Tell me about that. Any good punk rocker is, is actually a shrewd capitalist at their nature. And so I, of course, I'm going to plug a book I just wrote called Work Songs, which is where this idea came from. And the idea is that for as long as we've had language as a species, we've actually had music for the work we do. So if you look back at old sea shanties, one of which just went viral on TikTok and social media, and everybody's telling me all about it, or industrial hymns or field songs, we've actually for a long time had music that actually created meaning. It not just unify the sort of actions in the job of the people, but it actually gave them a bigger context for the work they were doing. And what's interesting is if you look at the evolution of that, modern work absolutely has no song. So there are very few, if any, professions today that actually have music for the work they do. And so I heard about this because I was reading old texts about old work songs, and I started to wonder and play with this idea of what would be the songs of modern work. And so I learned a little bit more about it. And when you study it, the musicologist will tell you that the real power of those old work songs wasn't actually the chord progressions or the music itself. It was the meaning that was created with the stories they told. And so with that idea, I decided that I would write a short collection of nonfiction essays called Work Songs that would endeavor to be the songs of modern work. So to tell the stories that we need to hear to give us the resilience, the meaning, the purpose that some of those old songs did. So what are some of those stories? What does the book cover? So it's a wide ranging sort of collection or collage of stories. And actually the concept was really built to feel like a record in some ways. So there's only 30 essays in this book, but I really wanted to take people on a journey so that you could emotionally actually feel the same way you did after a great concept record. So I think if you look at some of the key themes in there, it's not a book about HR or a book that only deals with corporate case studies. There are a few in there, but there are also 
the stories from Nellie Bly, who was a transformative first probably ever female investigative journalist. There's a story about Bruce Springsteen and how he wrote the biggest hit of his life when he was at one of the lowest points. Sonny Liston, who was a boxer who famously lost to Muhammad Ali and what happens to a person when you fall from such great heights. And so it's really this broad, rich, historical look at issues related to work. And so I could deep dive into a couple of those if you'd like. I'd love to hear some of those, especially around what I hear as an emerging theme, which is perseverance. So talk to me a little bit about perseverance and how that angle is covered in work songs. When I started this two years ago, there was no concept that we would be embarking on a modern pandemic similar to what we saw in 1918. But what was interesting is I had written about people who had lived through that experience. And so if you look at that time period in history, and if you actually back up to the late 1800s, it was a time full of change. And in fact, if you read the way that people wrote at that time, it feels very familiar to what we're experiencing today because we were on the brink or, or in the midst of what they called the Gilded Age, which was a complete transformation of the way that people worked and that you saw that work was really truly mechanized. It was the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And so whereas you might have had down in your neck of the woods, a person in the Appalachian Mountains who made chairs for a living and they made one chair at a time, they were now part of a factory where they would work 12 hours a day and make the left front leg of a chair and only that. And then they would pass it on to their comrade or partner to the right. And so if you look at that in relation to perseverance, you can see that people were really struggling in the Gilded Age, in the Industrial Revolution, because they weren't used to the idea that you had to devote your entire life to work and not really get that much in return. And so if you look at the way people wrote about it, there was actually some interesting thoughts that came out. And I think probably the most interesting that I found was from a man named William Gannett. And William Gannett was a Unitarian minister, and he had written a pamphlet called Blessed Be the Drudgery. The central idea of this whole thing was that our rote and routine jobs could actually be the path to liberation. And what he didn't know at that point in time is that there is actual brain science that if you routinely repeat a function over and over, you can carve a neural pathway and then it becomes essentially a subconscious activity. And then with the free time that your conscious mind now has, you could think about the greatest art or philosophy in the world. But the problem is, is that when you push that idea too far, obviously there is no end point. What was interesting is he sold millions of copies of that brochure. And so that really got me thinking, why would millions of people seek out a brochure that basically says, keep on suffering, it's going to be the best thing for you. And the reason was, and this comes back to a famous quote from Viktor Frankl, who once said that suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment you find meaning. And this pamphlet for people actually created meaning. And that's really what they were hungry for, is some bigger, better context for what they were doing. And so, you know, when you look at the corporate work I do and how you generate perseverance in that type of context, if you don't have meaning and if you don't create meaning for your people, then there will be very little hope of having any sense of perseverance. It's really interesting that the nexus of all of this is work. You know, if perseverance and disengagement are two sides of the same coin and the center of that is work. Why is work the central theme in our lives? Because for me, I want to recenter the story and take it away from work. I think your worth is not your work. And yet society wants to prove me wrong. So talk to me a little bit about that tension. 
When you think about this idea, there's an Atlantic writer named Derek Thompson, and he's keen on this too. And he wrote about this concept called workism, which is basically said that, and just as we let the music die of work, we actually let a lot of the social network and fabric that we use to create meaning in our broader life die as well. And so that people started to prioritize work more and more. And so he coined the term or somebody coined the term workism, which is essentially where we've replaced things like religion and the sort of old communal gatherings and all the social networks that we used to build. And we replace that with work. And then we try to extract from work in our relationship to it, all of the meaning and purpose and validation that we need as a species. The problem is work is not equipped to fully give us all that we need as human beings. And so I think as we go forward, and I think you're seeing it now as the lines are completely blurred between working and living at home, as we're all fully capable to essentially be just like those folks in the Gilded Age to put 12 or 15 hours a day in at work, we will not get the return on the investment we're putting in with our time and effort if we only look to work to define our lives and our purpose and meaning. everybody, Lori here to talk about my experiences as a LinkedIn learning instructor. Last summer, I had this cool opportunity from LinkedIn learning to record two courses. They gave me an opportunity to teach anything I wanted to teach. And I said, okay, I have two ideas. The first is on self-leadership, which is the art and science of individual accountability. And the second course I want to teach is on proactively managing conflict as an employee. When you feel like you have no power and you're constantly fighting with a boss, what do you do? Well, I've taught a course on that. So because I went through this awesome and amazing LinkedIn experience, they gave me a free code that I can give to you. If you want to try LinkedIn learning out for 30 days free, no obligation to see my courses on proactively managing conflict or self-leadership or anybody else's courses, head on over to bit.ly forward slash LinkedIn PRHR. That's bit.ly forward slash LinkedIn PRHR, all one word, all lowercase, to get 30 days of LinkedIn learning on me, no strings attached, so you can bet on yourself and win. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the rise of storytelling as a thing that we're incorporating in the world of work that we're hearing about from consultants. This is something that is both really core and critical to who we are as human beings, but it's also really trendy right now. What do you attribute that to? I came through a non-traditional path to storytelling. I may be one of the only people who found storytelling at the Pentagon. And, uh, and by the way, the only reason was because of exactly what you're talking about. When I worked at the Pentagon, as much as it might sound like a really interesting job, a lot of that work was really rote and routine. And I spent a lot of time in spreadsheets and Word documents and running around getting wet signatures on various things. And I found myself hungry to do something more. And so I looked outside to start writing and to basically say, could I do creative endeavors outside of work? That's such a good, important lesson for so many many people, something that I've been passionate about throughout my entire career, telling people that when you're immersed in this world of work and it's dissatisfying, don't 
continue to look to work to make you feel better, look inside of yourself and go find that other thing and have such a good personal life that your work life doesn't really matter. And it sounds like you did some of that at the Pentagon. You were like, this is fine. It pays the bills. It's interesting. But there's also this other thing that I want to explore. Yeah, absolutely. And in your own story mirrors the same dynamic with your journey out of Pfizer. And yes, I did do my homework. By the oh, way, my goodness. can I, yes, can you I did. just I tell it. you something that was really, this is a total aside. So one of my joys, as you might guess, is going to, to bookstores. And it's a little more complicated now. You have to kind of book your time and all that stuff. But I went this weekend and I didn't have any objective. You know, as much as I like to poke fun at business books, I also have to look at them. And that section actually has a lot of books that are much bigger and more important, I think, than that. And and I went in there and I saw betting on you on the shelf. And this is in Richmond, Virginia. And now granted, you're only in Raleigh, but I was like, this is amazing that I could have your stories, your words that you spent years putting together. I can now grab physically with my hand. And I just thought that was so cool. So tying it back, to your original question on storytelling, I actually think it's that because yes, it's trendy, absolutely. The science is starting to catch up with what stories can do, both from an influence perspective, memorability, in terms of any number of factors that you wanna use to either push change or your brand internally and externally, drive engagement. It really is a secret sauce because it's the oldest and most powerful tool that humans have been using for over 70,000 years, roughly. So that's something where I think the science is starting to pick up on it, which has driven some of the appeal in a corporate setting. I think the other thing is that we've just gotten to such an absurd position on how we communicate as organizations and people within organizations that we're going to tip over. The inflection point is here where you've extracted too much humanity from the way that we communicate to the point at which it's now no longer memorable, sometimes no longer understandable. And so it really is an open season right now to inject stories where they've been extracted systematically probably since the late 70s when we started doing something called agency theory. And I won't go down the economics on that one. Well, I'm so interested in how you're talking about corporate America and tipping the scales because you're right. There was a point when many of us in human resources would take these executive communication classes and they would tell us the only way you want to talk to leaders is in bullet points and you want to be short, and you want to be concise. And that is a recipe for not being memorable. I think the other interesting thing is, although stories have been with us for a long period of time, many of us are bad at telling stories. Like we share anecdotes, or we share emotions, or we just share vignettes, but we can't wrap the shit up into a story. So when you talk about storytelling, maybe we can start there and define it. Like what is a story to you? So there is a science and almost a mathematics of storytelling, which is why I think I actually am more inclined to go there. And I think the biggest thing is three core ideas or elements of a story. The first one is you have to have a protagonist or a main character. And so if you're in a corporate setting, that can be an individual leader. It can be a team. It can be the entire company. You have to say, who is this story about? Who are we paying attention to? If you can do that, then you say, great. Now, what's the second element? That protagonist or that main character has to be on a journey to do something. It could be some sort of change, essentially, from where we are today, really intrigues us. And so Kurt Vonnegut actually did some of the early research on the shapes of stories. And I put this one in the book, too, where Vonnegut was originally, after he was a prisoner of war in World War II, he became an anthropology student on the GI Bill. And the way that he went through is he said, you know what, I'm going to get the combined master's and bachelor's degree. And the way the program worked is you didn't get the bachelor's degree until you got the master's degree. 
And so he wrote this beautiful thesis, and it's pretty famous now, and it was on the essentially the shapes of stories. The idea behind the thesis was that all great stories have a similar shape. And the way he did it, and just mathematically, is he had time as the horizontal axis, and he had fortune of the main character as the vertical axis. And the idea was that as long as you had some pretty significant shifts in that character's sort of well-being or fortune, you were very intrigued as an individual. So if you look at, for example, the New Testament and the shape of the story there, it is very similar, if not the same, as Cinderella. The idea that we can follow a character on a journey and they have a good go at it at first and then all of a sudden everything falls to pieces, but at the end of the day there's redemption and they end up better than they ever did before, that story has been rinsed and repeated over and over again, whether it's Rocky, my favorite series of movies, or Harry Potter, or any number, there are just different variants on the same thing. So to get back to your question, I think if you have a main character, you know what journey you're on, and then you emphasize those points of transition. So when things were going good, then when they went bad. Well, that's what we want to talk about because people like and are interested in tension in these sorts of stories. And then when things are bad and they get better, we absolutely love that. And you can't just have a story that goes along and everything's great and we all live in Kansas and the harvest this year is as good as it was last year. No, that story is very boring. But if we have the Dust Bowl situation and we're sitting here and we're we're desperately trying to survive and we had pickled just enough onions to be able to eat and yes, we We only ate onions for the entire season, but we had a hope and a desperation that we knew if we just kept at it, we might get a better shot at the next season. We get it fully enraptured in that idea. And I think it's because we're fundamentally an optimistic species. And so we like to see hard times and people rise from it because it gives us hope that we might too. Well, one of the things that works against corporate storytelling or even just storytelling in general is time. What kind of time do we have at work to listen to people's stories, especially when they're not well told or they're new at this or corporate stories that we don't buy into? We don't have time. We're working and a good story requires an investment from the listener, right? It requires a choice from the person who's telling you that story, what details to include and to omit. But as a listener, I've got to choose to be bought in to the next five minutes. And that's a hard thing to do at work. We're all super swamped, right? It is absolutely not something you can just pick up and be great at. And I'll tell you, I was the worst writer and I may not be any good now, but I know I'm a heck of a lot better than I was. And I think the fundamental ingredient in good storytelling is repetition over and over and over again. As you know, with your book, you hit a point at which you probably thought you were done and you may have only been halfway because it is just a brutal and excruciating journey to get good at this. So I hope I didn't just scare everybody away. That said, if you're within an organization, particularly in the HR department, communication, team, something like that, you have to find a storyteller to guide the way. Somebody who understands how to take the raw information and actually create a compelling story that doesn't have to be as long as the ones that I tell. You know, it could be much more short. Brevity is very powerful in those situations. And if you're looking for that and you don't feel like you have it, there is an ocean of talent in other industries where people have actually become professional storytellers and they probably never thought they could work in corporate America or in a large organization doing that. And so go to the advertising agencies and look for the most disgruntled creative director or go to various places where people are already doing this organically and work out the here's how you become a corporate citizen stuff, which is very easy compared to the skill they have, which is storytelling. 
So I'm a corporate professional, human resources, marketing, sales. I'm listening to Punk Rock HR right now and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm bought into storytelling. I'm bought into work songs. I think that's really great. What's a story from work songs that's really gonna nail it, like sum up what the ethos is about this book? So what I would say is let's kind of hover on this power of story for a minute because it's easy. And I think to your point, there are a lot of people talking about storytelling and they're saying you need to tell the same stories internally and externally. You need to really uplift your design when you're pushing emails out or podcasts internally out, whatever it is. And that is all true. But I think there needs to be a fundamental appreciation of the transformative power of story. And so to tell that, I would really like to talk about World War II. We had soldiers that were living a very interesting dichotomy. They were simultaneously simultaneously thrust into some of the most fast-paced and brutal environments that any human could ever imagine, including today. But at the same time, they were in these really dull, just long, drawn-out periods of waiting to move. And that's the classic story. Everybody thinks war is fast-paced and fun, but it's actually not. There are these excruciating delays where logistics, you're waiting for the food to come up or supply lines, or you're waiting for other troops to make moves before you can. You don't always have all the information. And so it can get to be a place where morale really starts to fester. And it's the same as in any organization. When you're not making forward progress, that's when people start to really melt down. And so what they started to see, the commanders in the field said, you know, we got soldiers who are really struggling because with their idle hands, they're either actively disengaged and upset or they're getting really, really scared about what might become. And so they went back, believe it or not, they said, you know what, we need some books and we're in the period of ration right now. So we can't just print a bunch of books. So they went to some of the biggest publishing houses in New York and they said, is there any way we could work out a deal where you could actually get us some books, library books, whatever. We need these people reading just so they can fill their time and not think about all the bad things that might happen. What ended up happening is the publishing companies came together and what they did is they came up with this idea to create armed services editions. So they printed these books on newsprint essentially because it was the only paper that was fair and they designed them so that they would fit in the hip pocket or back pocket of a standard military uniform and they took famous titles both in nonfiction and fiction and they just pushed as many as they could out into the field. And so there were actually millions of books produced and distributed to soldiers. So mission accomplished, that should be the end of the story. But what's most interesting is what happened when those books landed there. Because as those people started to ingest these things, they really started to put themselves into the position of the characters. And as we talked about what the work songs did, that's what these books did. They gave them a new sense of purpose. They gave them a new sense of meaning, camaraderie, and they were able to tell these stories to each other. And so there's one in particular called the tree grows in Brooklyn. And this book was really, really powerful for many soldiers. And the author, Betty Smith, she ended up receiving over 10 thousand letters from soldiers talking about how this book changed their life. And one had said, you give a fellow some hope that there might be a chance that I might make it out of here. Another one wrote to say that he named his firstborn daughter after her. And every time he speaks her name, it will be in tribute to what your book means to me. And it was just one after another. And if you look at what that was all about, the protagonist is a young girl who grows up in Brooklyn. And it's a hard knock story where her father is an alcoholic, he's disengaged, he's not a around. She really doesn't have much by way of opportunity. And as she goes, she has this dream that she might one day go to college. And it's a pretty simple story by today's standards, but it just follows her journey. Setback after setback after setback. But what happens? She goes to college and she eventually ends up getting married. And it's this beautiful story. Well, the metaphor they use
used is this tree that grows in the sidewalk outside of her apartment in Williamsburg. And this tree has been cut down, it's been burned, it's been paved over, but it just won't die. It keeps on growing back up every single time. And so it was that tree combined with the story of this young girl that actually gave these soldiers the resilience that they needed to know that even if I go down and I face an uncertain doom in this war, I will do so knowing that I gave it my all. And so what was really interesting is on Omaha Beach, you had people reading books as they died. And it was just to me the most powerful example of how you want to spend your last moments on this earth is ingesting some other story because it transforms you and makes you feel like part of something bigger. And I think if you look at storytelling in that lens and not try and limit it to some machine that you're going to use to drive corporate output, then you will be authentic to what it could be at your organization. Really beautiful and an awesome way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on Punk Rock HR. We will include all of your information in the show notes. Everybody will be able to connect with you. And it was a real pleasure to hear you talk about your story today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lori. I really appreciate you having me on and congratulations on your book, which I've been following from afar. It's a great book and I encourage everybody to go buy that one. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. For more information, including show notes and links, you can head on over to punkrockhr.com. And if you like what you heard today, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.